You are listening to the Yizzy Research Podcast, hosted and created by me, Imani, a researcher. This is the podcast for people who research people. In this episode, I speak with Mandy. My name is Mandy Hall, and I am a senior user experience researcher at Microsoft Research in the Health Futures group, and I'm the solo member of the Medical Experiences and Design team. So I currently support all the teams on Health Futures, and really prior to joining Microsoft, I uh, worked as a human factors engineer at Kestra Technologies, which is a startup, and then prior to that, I worked in home healthcare, doing patient coordination, community liaison type work, and I even led a a telehealth uh, program. Have you heard of ambidextrous research? It's not research about being able to use both hands equally well. Mandy's done a lot in her career, including voice of the customer work and ambidextrous research, and she tells us about it. So, yeah, so recently I've, I've been very interested in this idea of ambidextrous research. And as a user experience researcher, um, we spend a lot of time um, looking at exploratory as well as delivery type of type of uh, research. And it, it can fall in, into different types of um, nomenclature to describe uh, this type of research. Uh, other terms are foundational, uh, generative, uh, formative, summative. But really, uh, ambidextrous research is the ability to, to do product discovery and product delivery in parallel. And this stems from the ability of organizations to conduct exploration and exploitation research simultaneously. And this, and this idea is further explored in the book, The Invincible Company. Are you familiar with this, this book? I am not familiar with that one. I have a very long TBR list, so I'll, I'll add that one to it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not a very long read. It kind of goes through little snippets, um, business models. Um, it'll kind of tickle your imagination. And, and really what this, you know, this book states that for a company to be invincible, it needs to constantly reinvent itself before it becomes obsolete which involves exploring the future while excelling at exploiting the present. It cultivates an innovation and execution culture that lives in harmony. So I like to use the analogy really of being ambidextrous with both your hands, being able to to be um, very skilled at writing or or completing tasks with both your left and right hand. So if you think about um, an ambidextrous organization, my my dominant um, hand is my right hand. I don't really think about uh, using it from day to day. I can easily write. Um, and so if you think about this in, in, the, in the analogy of an organization, this is your day-to-day business. This is what your, um, your, your current customers, um, the types of markets you're in, the, the type of technology, um, if you're in the tech industry, that, you, that your customers are using. And then I, and then you, you know, you go to my non-dominant hand, which is my left hand. And really this hand is a little more difficult for me to, to control and for me to write and and do tasks with. And this really uh, represents being, being creative and innovative. So, um, you know, for an organization and this idea of ambidextrous research is really being able to be good at both these types of, of tasks. And you mentioned innovation as an important part of ambidextrous research. Innovation depends on two things generally. What are those two things? Yes. So innovation um, does depend on two things. And I like to think of these uh, two things in the form of uh, questions. 
So the first question being, does the innovation create a new market or address the existing market? And does the innovation use a new technology or an existing technology? So really, I, you know, if you, if you picture, there's, there's various different types of innovation. And um, if you picture this on an X and Y graph and in four quadrants, or you know, maybe a better, a better way to visualize it is a two by two factorial design with the X axis being as technology with two quadrants labeled existing and new technology and the Y axis as market with two quadrants labeled existing and new markets. Innovation isn't necessarily just innovation. There are different types of innovation. So what are some different types of innovation and what are some examples of those different types? There's different. There's four different types of uh, innovation and I'll have examples of each one. But let's visualize this picture of um, to kind of help help with this explanation is like picture this picture an X and Y graph with four quadrants or two by two factorial design with the X axis as technology with two quadrants labeled existing and new technology and the Y axis as market with two quadrants labeled existing and new markets. And so the, so keeping with the X and Y graph visual, let's talk about four types of innovation and where they lie within the four quadrants. So we'll start, let's start with the, the left quadrant representing an existing market and existing technology. So this is incremental innovation. Incremental innovation can be described as making improvements on an existing product or service. Have you purchased a, a razor lately? I have actually. I purchased a pack of razors last week. In that packet of, of razors, how many blades did you buy on the on the razor? I think maybe three or four. So three or four, yeah. So so this is this is a great example of this this idea of incremental innovation. For example, Gillette changed from a single razor blade to double to now up to six blades. So you go you go to the store and you're overwhelmed. It's like, do I just want one blade? Do I want two blades? Three? And now there's already up to six. So this, this is incremental innovation, which is small, but but the example is such that showcases how, you know, maybe the the one wasn't wasn't really meeting a lot of um, market market needs or and then that existing market and existing technology and just keep keep increasing the number of blades. Um, so that's an example of incremental innovation. Okay, now let's let's move to the right quadrant representing new technology but an existing market. And this is this is disruptive innovation, an innovation that conflicts with and threatens to replace traditional approaches to competing within an industry. When you're working day to day, or do you interact with with any type of computers? Yes, I do. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you know, keeping with this disruptive innovation, um, think back to you know maybe you're maybe you're too young for this, but did you ever work on a, a desktop computer? Yes, I grew up. We had the Gateway desktop. I think like the cow printed branding. <laughs> Yeah, so these big clunky computers—they're not—they're not mobile. <laughs> they're very difficult to take with you. And so, an example of disruptive innovation would be Apple's iPad or tablets, or in laptops such as the Surface uh, that we have at Microsoft. So, so now you just disrupted the whole idea of what a computer is. You don't have these giant computers in the in the you know and years ago where it would fill up a whole warehouse. <laughs> You have to do. You have to interact with it in this one location, and then it and then it evolved to being 
being able to sit on your desktop to now you can really bring your computer with you and, and get access to Wi-Fi and, and everything's very mobile. So that's really disrupted this idea of this desktop computer um, as, as it became more um, a, of a disruptive innovation. So now let's move to the, to the right top quadrant, representing new technology and new market. And this is radical innovation. Radical innovation is when new products or services are developed using new technology that open up new markets. Um, so examples of this are new medications to treat known diseases, um, such as Aircept that helps treat the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. So if you think about it, when you have new technology developed or medical, this would be an example of medical discovery where previously there has been, there were no drugs to treat this type of disease. And now with this radical innovation, you now have an, a new medication that can treat this, this, um, this type of disease. So moving to the top left quadrant, representing existing technology and a new market, this is architectural innovation. And this type of innovation occurs when new products and services use existing technology to create new markets and or new consumers that did not purchase that item before. Um, so can you think of any, uh, so Imani, let's, you know, let's try to find an example of how, how um, this plays out in, in, in current terms. Do you have a, do you have a cell phone? Yes, I have it right here. People can't see it, but I have an iPhone. <laughs> okay, yeah. So it seems like you know most people carry around this cell phone. So, so this architectural innovation. Uh, do you you know keeping with this this type of innovation? Do you have you um, added on or or any type of um, other devices that you can access similar things on your on your phone? Do you do you? Yeah. So I have a um, a MacBook. So my MacBook and my iPhone talk to each other if I want them to. Like with the photos, for example, um, if I take a photo on my phone, I have the iCloud. I can view them on my laptop as well. Yeah, excellent. So that's that's yeah, that's like transfer. But the example, I know I don't have this, but if you think about this uh, smartwatch, where they take this existing cell phone technology and then they repackaged it into a watch. So, you know, for example, this opened up a new market of purchasers by repackaging an existing technology. And, and I don't have this either. I have a Fitbit on right now. <laughs> but you see people all the time now just wearing and having all access to text messages, um, calls just, just on, their, on their wrist. So, you know, this idea of, you know, going from, uh, you know, given your example, you have this laptop. And now, really, you could access most things through the phone. So, you, so there's a lot of architectural innovation that has, that has taken place. Uh, and many other examples we can see as you're going through your day-to-day -day interaction with technology. Okay, Imani, are you ready for a, a quiz based on this exp explanation that I just provided? Yes, I was listening intently, so I'm ready. Okay, <laughs> excellent. So let's... So let me get started. So let's test your knowledge. So what would, so let's, the example being um, an insulin administered uh, via inhaler versus injected. And this would be for, uh, to help treat type one diabetes. I'm going to say disruptive because insulin already existed, but not through an inhaler form. So that's a great guess. I love that. Do you have any other possible types of innovation this could be? Maybe radical? 
radical because radical is a new technology, but a new market. But let's let's imagine that there are, you know, currently those that have type one diabetes um, only have the ability to inject insulin. So maybe incremental. Yes, exactly. That's right. <laughs> yeah, because it was already an existing technology, which is this idea of um, insulin and an existing market. And now um, there's a there's an incremental change in, in how um, users can can get the benefits of, of the insulin and administer that. So let's move on to um, where would a, a wearable defibrillator be? So just to give you a little more um kind of insight into what a wearable defibrillator is, currently patients will, will get pacemakers or if they have a, a sudden cardiac arrest, there would be um, a, an AED, someone would come and there have to be a bystander that would then, then help shock and, and regulate and get the heart back into um, a normal, a normal uh, rhythm. So think about this idea of a wearable defibrillator where um, this device would would automatically um, detect a sudden cardiac arrest and then and then treat the patient. So there's already this existing market of, of those that are at risk for uh, a heart attack or sudden cardiac arrest. Um, and, and currently there's only the, they only have the ability to have a bystander administer that treatment or um, or get if they're at high risk get a, get a pacemaker. Where do you think that that type of product would fall? Disruptive. That's right. Disruptive, <laughs> disruptive innovation. <clears throat> so let's move on to, to uh, another example. Let's keep, keep testing, see if we can apply these, these types of innovation to this, to this new example in healthcare. So, you know, imagine um, that there's only the ability to do, to, to conduct x-rays and there was a, there's been a new machine and it's an MRI. So it uses uh, electromagnetic forces instead of x-rays to produce images internal to the body. So now this, this uh, new te- type of technology is generated to be able to, to take images internal uh, to the user in a, in a new way. I'm thinking architectural. That, that is a good, yeah. But, but think about it in, is this a new technology? And then there's new uses because you can use MRI in, in unique ways to, to really get a sense of what's what's happening inside the body and the new images to treat. Maybe radical or? That's right. It's radical. radical. Okay. <laughs> okay. These are hard because these, help, you know, I, I kind of made this hard. This is my domain. I'm you're really being a good sport on this because this is super difficult. The razors are a little, a little more um, a pedestrian type of example because they're, they're widely understood. But yeah, these these healthcare examples are tough. So and then and then the next uh, example. So maybe we can just eliminate the process of elimination here with the, the four different types of innovation is this. Imagine the next generation of genetic sequencing to identify at risk patients or target therapies. So you're taking you're taking existing technology mm-hmm. and you're able to to really um, sequence and, and and do more. Um, with this type of technology to really identify at-risk populations and then further to do tar- to target therapeutics and create new and find new, new therapeutics to, to treat these types of um, these types of new dis- medical discovery work. 
architectural. Yes, architectural. You're right. These were tough. <laughs> These were really tough. And, and I mean, it, it's not, it's not um, you know, you got to really think through. I really try to take the existing new, existing new and market technology. And it's, it's really tough. Yeah. So we talked a lot about, so the different types of innovation, right? We talked about the fact that innovation depends on market and technology. Then you talked about the four quadrants and we talked about architectural, radical, incremental, and disruptive innovation. How can researchers support an ambidextrous organization to be invincible with UX research with all this knowledge in mind? I believe that UXR researchers, they're underutilized organizations given their capacity and ability to drive product delivery and product discovery. So if you think about how can researchers support an ambidextrous research, uh, ambidextrous organization to be invincible with user experience research, I really consider this um, to, to operate in product delivery UXR, which involves focusing on current customers, markets, and technology. And a, a user experience researcher could do this by, um, by conducting rapid discovery research, conducting UXR sprints ahead of engineering builds, usability informative studies, interviewing interview stakeholders, customers, uh, conducting UX competitive analyses. And so these are just some examples of how uh, user experience researchers can really help um, engage and drive product delivery. Um, and then you look at the other side, which is this idea of the product discovery UXR support, which involves focusing on new customers, markets, and technology. And this in includes exploratory research, uh, ideation sessions uh, to spark innovation ideas, really identify and understand problems, um, and think about some, some innovative uh, types of solutions to address those problems, assessing future trends, and, and really Inter, inter, interviewing and interacting with stakeholders, but these types of interpreters. So interpreters um, finding these types of individuals that are uh, gifted and just really doing uh, research and predicting future trends. And then helping teams reimagine new workflows, new user experiences. You can do this through value propositions, uh, prototyping, testing prototypes, um, testing new different types of solutions and really pushing, pushing them to think about this new, ex, this new experience um, end to end and how that would uh, manifest um, in, a, in a future world. So these are just, just two, two ways that um, user experience researchers can do this and they can do this in parallel. They can divide um, up their, their research into um, different work streams um, and do this concurrently. What's the difference between product delivery UX research and product discovery UX research? The difference between product delivery and product discovery is really that product delivery involves focusing on current customers, markets, and technology. And the product discovery involves focusing on new customers, markets, and technology. If you are an aspiring or current UX researcher who needs help with your resume, professional brand, interview skills, cover letter, LinkedIn profile, and portfolio, consider applying for the Yizzy Research Coaching Program. Coaching clients exit the program with a refreshed resume, cover letter, research portfolio, and detailed notes to make them more competitive in the UX research job market. 
If you are interested or know someone who is, visit yazziresearch.com to learn more and apply. That's Yazzie Research, Y-Z-Z-I research.com. So we talked a lot about ambidextrous research. That was the first chunk of our conversation. And so I also wanted us to have some time to talk about voice of the customer as well, because you've had quite a bit of experience with that. What is the voice of the customer work stream? So the, the voice of the customer work stream is a work stream with involving engineering, product design, and user experience research. The idea of this the work stream and, and how I kind of combine and able to integrate and work with teams to, to conduct delivery and discovery product uh, research is to, to kind of bring the team along the customer and research discovery and delivery journey to really build empathy and in a way co-design with, with users and, and the product teams to conduct UXR in a, in a process um, and do this iteratively. Kind of storytelling and, and discovering along with me that uh, the customer engagement. And how does ambidextrous research relate to a voice of the customer work stream? The, the voice of the customer or voice of the user is a forum for user experience researchers to drive UX innovation through the discovery delivery process to really create valuable and usable products for users, to identify user needs and that map to product requirements, to discover new customers and, and their, their user needs, such as new use cases or scenarios, to assess current user experience uh, technology limitations, to inspire innovative solutions, really to evaluate current customers' UX challenges, to inform and improve product offerings, and create a feedback loop between product delivery, discovery work across teams to align on the end-to-end user experience. That sounds very complex. So I want to break it down maybe into more digestible steps. What are some steps a researcher can take to create a VOC UXR work stream? Seems complex and that a lot is, is being conducted. And so really the, the steps you can take to kind of create this voice of the customer, UXR work stream, is to, to really develop a research plan with, with the team you work with. Really working with that PM closely to understand some of the, the unanswered questions, their assumptions, their hypotheses, um, and really start on this discovery journey with them to uncover user needs that then can be um, mapped to engineering or product requirements. And so how I, how I conducted this was really starting with this research plan and then um, having weekly meetings uh, with collaborators, with different, uh, with the, the UX team, with designers. Um, and then I went through this phase of after meeting and, and, and working closely with my collaborators. Again, I, I conduct these in smaller groups once a week and then I kind of developed within this plan, this rapid discovery research phase, where I, I did a deep dive into what is all current research that is has been conducted in this domain, um, looking at the literature, looking at previous, previous studies, previous work um, that has been conducted on the, our particular um, customer and, and area and, and type of technology. 
And then, and then going through another phase of this exploratory research phase where I've now uncovered and there's a ton of unanswered questions and hypotheses and assumptions that we need to, to validate and, and gather evidence on. And so, you know, once I, once I go through these, these are the first four steps. So you have develop research plan. Um, and this involves uh, really, really um, incorporating feedback and learnings through these, these weekly meetings um, and then having conducted rapid, rapid discovery research phase, exploratory research phase, and these are ongoing work uh, uh, research that I conduct. And then all of these gathering, this evidence meeting results in this um, VOC UXR work stream, which is um, you need to get buy-in. So the buy-in included this ability to uh, become a official work stream to be able to report out all these interesting findings that I was uh, uncovering during these research phases and this co these collaborative meetings with, with partners and various teams that we work with. Finally, this all came to, um, came to uh, fruition in a, a monthly, I call it VOC, Voice of the Customer, Voice of the User UXR Workstream sessions, where I'm now an active member in an active workstream in our monthly uh, engineering meetings. So I report out on the research I'm doing. I, um, I answer any questions they have, and I really bring that uh, voice of the customer, um, those examples, that discovery and exploratory work that I'm doing, and I, and I report that back iteratively every month um, and sometimes weekly. My sessions sometimes will carry on for multiple um, weeks within this within this. Um, this, these weekly meetings, I, I'm only supposed to report out once, once a month, but many times there's so much engagement and, and so much interest. And I have conducted uh, so much research that it's great to really um, be able to, to have that buy-in and that need from our larger engineering team and product team. They're, they're hungry for that. They want to know more because it really helps them be thoughtful and the product requirements and, and how they're how they're designing and developing. And you mentioned getting buy-in. Which stakeholders do you need to get buy-in from in order to have a successful VOC program? Yeah, the buy-in buy is key. So, so how you get buy-in um, to, to have a successful VOC program is that the PM is key to getting buy-in. And I partner with PMs to accelerate their impact and work, such as their ability to test market and customer assumptions to inform product requirements. And then, and then it also involves, um, the buy-in is, it also involves like really building a relationship with the teams I support and help gather evidence as quickly as possible to inform product development. I do this by conducting a foundational exploratory research, as well as through lean UX strategies such as study designs to efficiently test product and customer hypotheses and assumptions and test prototypes. Um, you know, for example, doing, doing usability studies, heuristic expert evaluations, and, and really this buy-in happens and, and you show this buy-in and, and through credibility by showing how UXR can help prevent engineering waste, reduce product market risk, and really help uncover uh, technology market insights 
and we become this connector to the team, really closing team feedback loops and fostering company uh, customer empathy to build better products faster. When you were talking about some of the steps you can take to create a VLC UXR work stream, you mentioned obviously that buy-in was important. And also an important part of getting buy-in is keeping your stakeholders engaged. And you mentioned that there were monthly VLC work stream sessions. What did those sessions look like? Um, we, ha- we have weekly uh, engineering meetings with, with the team. And in my work stream, uh, one of those weekly meetings will be dedicated to just reporting out on UXR and, and VOC. And so what this looks like is I many times just every week do a quick report out about what I'm doing, similar to Scrum. I mean, if you look at an agile, um, I like a dual agile type of type of model during that monthly session that many times they want to hear more and I get more time even weekly now it's, it's been happening. And then I'll invite different speakers and customers to present to the team. I do this in the form of presentations, uh, study findings, and, and also just facilitating brainstorming, brainstorming sessions with the team to get them to think about how we're going to design and develop things that, that help envision and, and help the user. So that kind of is a, a little bit about how these monthly uh, work stream sessions play out. And as these types of sessions are happening, what role do you as the researcher play as the team discusses these potential solutions? I know for me, when I give recommendations and solutions after research, um, depending on what the dynamic is of the team, you have to figure out what role you play in that context and how you fit. So what are your thoughts on that? The UXR role um, to play to help kind of facilitate discussion, the, the role becomes this role of connector where you're you're facilitating discussion, you're asking the, the customer-centered questions, you're being that voice of the user or customer. You know, what is the what is the what does the customer want? What are their needs? Are we thinking about them in the context of creating these requirements of putting ourselves in the shoes of the customer or the potential user um, for these products we're designing? And really, are we mapping and, and understanding um, their needs and being thoughtful about that? So my so the UXR role is really that one of discussion. We, we always bring this back to the, to the, to the customer and, and, and really looking at it from their perspective and, and pushing the, the team to really be thoughtful and how they're they're thinking about solutions, how they're designing the back end to then connect with the front end and that UI or that the cognitive map uh, mapping of how customers do things and think about things, and even thinking about other other products and their workflow, and really helping the team understand how customers and users currently do things. So. You know, you can imagine this this uh, example would be imagine that we only had desktop computers and now all of a sudden phones are a new technology. So, you know, within that example, you could say the the user uh, experience researcher would come in and say, okay, what what's a requirement? Now someone's mobile. Let's think about their environment. Let's think about the limitations they have. Is the screen too small? Can they carry it easily? Let's think about these requirements and in the various contexts of how that user interacts with products and the problems they're trying to solve and the tasks they're trying to complete. So yeah, the the, the role of, of the UXR really 
really is to kind of connect that those those dots really connect um, this you know concept to this actually well vetted out day to day experience um, that the user will encounter in their environment with that particular product. And this question is a sticky and tricky question, <laughs> and this is one question I. And a lot of researchers get when we interview for research roles. And I don't always know how to answer this one. So I want to hear your take. What does the UX researcher do when stakeholders disagree with your findings? Oh, Amani, yeah, this is so hard. The, the, the best thing about being a UXR researcher, as you know, is that we don't have all the answers. We just know how to gather evidence and engage stakeholders and get to the root cause of those of their problems, and then really to to say, you know, if there's a disagreement, um, you know, how can we say, great, let's let's go look at the, let's see what the literature has to say. Let's go and talk to some users and and ask them about about this particular problem or or whatever we're disagreeing on. And I love to use this example from from one of my uh, previous roles. I was a human factors engineer. And I was sitting in this room of all mechanical engineers, and they were all debating how big a button should be on this particular device, medical device I was working on. And they all had their own opinion. Some wanted it to be really small. Um, some wanted it to, um, to be a different color or a certain color. S- some other people wanted to have a different texture. And so there's all this discussion going on about this button to turn on this device, <laughs> this medical device. And so, you know, I just said, hey, let, let's go see what the, the literature has to say for this. And, and then let me go, let's go conduct a test to see, to see um, what users think of these different types of buttons that you all are, are arguing about and, and, and what, what size it should be, what color it should be. So I quickly went and found a, this literature review on uh, making recommendations for button sizes for a certain type of cohort of users. And we were designing this medical device for older adults. So it already gave some sort of foundational direction and, and requirements for how big a button should be for a certain type of user to be able to interact with. So I said, hey, here you go. Let's start with these different types of uh, measurements for this button and the team was the engineers were like great and then the different engineers will go out and create really quickly mocks mock um, mock-ups or prototypes and this was a mechanical engineering so actually they would create physical <laughs> um, prototypes for me and then I said awesome now let me just take this out to users and I quickly spun up a usability study and I just asked users I gave them the simulated task to do and I and I observed and got their feedback on were they able to to be able to find this button, push this button, interact with this button. What did they think about it? So, so this example shows that when there's a disagreement, the, the great part about being a UXR um, professional is that you say, okay, let's go gather some evidence to support these claims. If these are opinions, uh, let's go out and, and and figure out how to address this. Now, to your point, when there's disagreements and challenges that have to do with technology capabilities versus the engineering time, you're, you're held to some, there's misalignments. Because I've run into this idea that 
yeah, this is the optimal user experience that I would like and that users want, but there's limitations in the technology capabilities. There's limitations in our ability to, to work with manufacturers. It would take years for us to, to engineer or, or design that type of experience, experience that you want. So that's when those, if you look at it from a, a, a disagreement on a perspective of what that user experience optimally should be, then that's, that's harder. Then those are trade-offs you have to make as a team. Just to try to connect everything that you mentioned about developing a research plan, having uh, weekly meetings, rapid discovery, exploratory research, um, the work stream, buy-in from stakeholders, work stream sessions monthly, right? Um, How to manage uh, stakeholders who disagree with your findings. When you think about all this stuff together, how else does a VOC program manifest? So for example, there are their repositories, readout decks, log analysis, et cetera. You know, this idea of how do you do this iteratively where you're not creating friction and you're not slowing down engineering teams. So how do you report out and integrate the team to, to address, for example, these, these challenges and to really um, thoughtfully design these projects and, and adhere to these timelines, and and that is and that's why this VOC UXR workstream is is so impactful um, because I'm able to do this weekly and monthly, and I'm connecting with these teams, closing these feedback loops, and really reducing friction and addressing these challenges because before they become when they're just currently friction points and not battles or wars, for example, when you have teams that disagree with what they're, with what they're, um, with what they're doing, or they're just misalignment. So those, if you have this UXR um, VOC work stream, it really allows you to reduce that friction and really bring everyone together that UXR is so gifted at doing. And that's why I bring in customers. I bring in that sense of empathy um, through the presentations or readouts and decks or um, you know the the deliverables that I that I present to the team is is different each each month. Uh, sometimes they're um, discussions and we've come across some misalignments between design, what design's doing in the front end, and what's happening in the back end, for example, and then. I can facilitate these discussions during these VOC sessions um, and address them and, and come to, to solutions that help move the project along faster. And lastly, I want to leave with some practical, some, some more practical advice for UX researchers who have tried to implement a VOC program and weren't successful. What would you tell them to encourage them to try again? For those researchers who have really tried to implement a VOC UXR workstream and and weren't successful, or your your readouts um, aren't well attended, or you're only able to to um, get some some buy-in. You're getting you're having a hard time getting buy-in. So really, it's it includes a, a few things that you can do. You really have to build credibility in your brand, but also but also ask for a seat at the table. So I'm very forthright, and I ask to be in meetings that others do not think I need to be end. And I find this extremely useful to sit on engineering meetings and other planning meetings to see where I can best be plugged in and be able to assess the UXR needs of the team 
and really to understand those unanswered questions, then act fast to deliver. So if I'm not in those meetings, many times I find that, you know, depending on the maturity of the organization you you work in and their their buy-in to design and 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 UXR work, um, that they don't know where to plug you in. They're not intentionally keeping you out of meetings. They just don't usually understand um, where you need to be plugged in at. So really to be able to build credibility and and really showcase and figure out how you best can support these projects, ask to, for, for a seat at the table, you know, ask to be in these meetings and then speak up and say, hey, that's something that UXR can address. You have an unanswered question. Let me go out and spin up a study real quick or gather some evidence in the literature. And then you come back and you say, hey, I have, a, I have some evidence to support that claim or the, to support or answer that hypothesis or that assumption um, with evidence. And here's some customers I engaged with. You know, product teams love that um, and they want it fast. And so staying ahead of these builds and these requirements, and you can do that by being in these meetings and understanding the, the product roadmap. Another thing... Uh, that needs to take place to be successful in really being able to implement this this VOC UXR work stream is changing culture is also key uh, to be successful. And really, I first focused on getting everybody to understand design thinking and how to how to use a customer centered approach to product development. Um, so this this takes time and is vital for for a company to be invincible. Um, you're seeing this big trend happen right now that if you're not uh, using a customer-centered approach, you're going to be left behind. You're not going to be creating um, products and addressing these problems and understanding the root cause of problems that users have and being thoughtful about how you're designing uh, solutions to address those those problems. So really, um, for a company to be invincible and not become obsolete, They really, the UXR researchers are the hidden gems in companies that can facilitate, drive, and lead innovation for company success. So they need to be given a seat. They need to be given a seat at the table. Uh, So be patient. Don't give up. If you've tried to to create a work stream, a VOC, a UXR work stream in the past, please don't give up. Find allies. Create a community within your organization and slowly grow that community. Um, so, for example, I, um, I'm, I'm just a solo UXR uh, professional. I support multiple teams. Uh, and so I started this UXRD, so this User Experience Research and Design Health Collective, to bring together UX researchers and designers from across Microsoft, working on health-related research and products to meet monthly to excel, accelerate collaboration and our impact, as well as share resources. And this has been a tremendously motivational and inspirational and, um, you know, create a community, don't give up, find allies, and, and really ask for a seat at the table. UX researchers can prevent companies from becoming obsolete by influencing innovation and uncovering what is not always obvious. I really like that perspective from Mandy. Working proactively and collaboratively is a good way to achieve this. Thanks for listening to the Yizzy Research Podcast, the podcast for people who research people. I'm Imani, the host and creator. 
Visit yizzyresearch.com for podcast show notes and information about my UX research coaching program. Again, that's yizzyresearch.com, Y-Z-Z-I research.com. This podcast was produced by Whisper and Mutter.